Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Will you please rise for the reading of our scripture? Our first passage today is from Genesis chapter 1. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And in Psalm 6, we hear these words. I'm worn out from groaning. Every night, I drench my bed with tears. I soak my couch all the way through. My vision fails because of my grief. It's weak because of all my distress. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. You may be seated. How does God work in this world? I mean, what does God actually do? When we experience suffering, what role does God play in that suffering? Is God causing it to happen? Does God allow it to happen? Is it part of God's plan? These are the kind of questions that we're going to be asking today and in the coming weeks during this series of sermons on why. This week, I spent time with a number of different families in our congregation. I sat with a woman who last Sunday learned that her daughter had been murdered by her fiance sat down to try to comfort her, console her. There were no right words to say except, I love you and we care. And yet in the middle of that, the why questions come up. Um, I had dinner one night this week with two families who lost children to suicide, one six months ago, one six years ago. Again, in the aftermath of this, the anger, the hurt, the pain, the questions about our faith. I, I preached a funeral service yesterday in our chapel of a 27-year-old who succumbed to depression. And that's just one week and one piece of ministry here at Resurrection. The, the, the prayer request cards that you turn in every week, and inevitably there's someone who's found out that they have cancer, or there's someone who, uh, whose spouse left them, or a job loss, or you know, in the dozens of prayer concerns that come in. And, and again, there are times where even the most faithful, even the most devoted Christians who've studied theology and understand faith find themselves asking why. Why is this happening to me? Why isn't God doing anything? Did God want this to happen? Is this part of God's will for my life? We find ourselves struggling. And, and that doesn't even take into account the things that happen that we see on the evening news, where we watch on the national news earthquakes in February, 58,000 people who died in Turkey and in Syria. 
or the violence that happens across the country and even in our own city at times, or the wars that are taking place, and, and so many other things. In Madagascar, 870,000 people right now are in danger of uh, not having enough food to eat because of a severe drought in southeast Madagascar. I mean, these are the things that we see on a regular basis. And though the world, and, and when we talk about suffering, it's easy for us to think, well, the world is just all suffering. Well, it's not all suffering. Most of what you experience in life is goodness and blessings and, and wonderful things. But when the suffering comes, it feels like that's all we're experiencing in life. And so we begin asking these questions. And it's not just us asking these questions. People in the Bible ask these same questions. So the psalmist uh, cries out, there's, a, there's a, about 70 psalms, uh, 60 to 70 psalms, that at least some portion of, of the psalm is a complaint or a lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And Jesus hangs on the cross. And you remember what he prays when he's hanging from the cross from Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus asking that. Now, intellectually, I'm certain that Jesus knew that God had not forsaken him. But the way he felt at that moment was forsaken by God. And at times, I suspect you have or will again. When I talk to people who are non-religious and nominally religious, I, I typically will ask them, tell me your story. Did you ever go to church or synagogue or were you a part of a faith community? And almost always, people who, who are atheists or agnostics today will say, yes, I was a part of that. My grandparents took me to vacation Bible school or I went to youth group when I was a kid. So they had some faith experience. And then I ask, well, what happened? And I will tell you the number one answer, and almost everybody says, says this, but the number one answer I receive is this, I cannot reconcile a God of love and mercy and grace with the suffering that either I've experienced or my friends have experienced or the world sees on a regular basis. So this is a very serious question, the problem of suffering. In, uh, in theology, the term that's used to describe this challenging theological question is theodicy. And theodicy from two words, theo, which means God, and dike means justice. Where is God's justice in a world that we live in, in the world that we see around us today? And so we ask the questions, why? Today we kick off the sermon series, and we're going to start with the idea of God and suffering and trying to make sense of suffering and how do we bring these two ideas together. Next week, we're going to talk about unanswered prayers, because this is another place where we ask why. I prayed and pled for God to do something for somebody that I dearly loved, and they died anyway. Why? How do we make sense of what God is doing and how God answers our prayers or doesn't answer our prayers. The next week, we're going to talk about how we discern the will of God. How do we know what God wants us to do in this world? It can be very confusing. And so we're going to talk about the will of God. And then finally, in the last sermon in the series, we're going to be talking about, um, about how God's love ultimately prevails. So we're going to end on a high note, and we're going to just take a look and see, so what does God do in our world? So all four of these messages are sort of building on each other. So today, we want to talk about the problem of suffering in the world. And when we talk about suffering, we recognize there's multiple kinds of suffering. And, and, and for some people, the way they think about God, and this is an assumption that we bring or a presupposition we bring to the table about how God operates in our world. Uh, but for some people, they see God almost like the puppeteer who's manipulating a puppet. You see it on this video here on the screen. But God is up there and he's just controlling every one of us and everything that happens and, and whatever we do, you know, even though we feel like we have freedom, we're actually just doing whatever God wants us to do. Now, we don't tend to think that God is manipulating us but when we say that, that everything that's happening, we're blaming God for everything that's happening, in essence, we're saying that God is manipulating all of us and everything that happens, the weather patterns and, and everything else, that God is up there just pushing buttons and pulling levers, a bit like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. But of course, we know the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain was a fabrication. And, and it come, when it comes to our own faith, I just want to invite you to think carefully about, is this really how God works? Everything that happens to you happened because God wanted it to happen to you. God was manipulating things just so it would happen to you. Now, sometimes we say that on the good things. So, you know, we drive into the mall, and I remember, you know, a television preacher some years ago, and he talked about how God just prepared that parking space right in the front of Dillard's on the front row of the shopping mall. 
And it's like, wait a minute, seriously? God is preparing a parking space for you in front of Dillard's at the shopping mall on Christmas you know, shopping, but there's a car accident that happens down the road and four people die in that accident. Is that how it works, really? So sometimes we say things and we, you know, and we even think, and now ultimately you can thank God for everything because in the ultimate sense, God is the one who created all things. And so we thank God for that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God has just opened up the parking space just for you. But we thank God in everything for all things. Just carefully thinking about how it is that God works is important to us when we deal with the question of suffering. And here I wanna say that you are not a marionette and God is not a puppeteer. Now there are some Christians who do believe that. There's a sort of form of hyper-Calvinism where, where God is controlling every single thing that happens. And you can make a case for that in scripture. You can find a verse here or there that would support the idea that every single thing that's happening is God's doing. But you can make a much broader case as you look at the totality of scripture that that is not really how God operates. When you read the Bible, you find that there's a whole lot of things that happen in the Bible that God did not want to have happen, right? When God tells us this is one of the 10 commandments not to murder and then somebody murders, are we gonna say that God wanted that person to murder when God told us not to murder? That doesn't even make any sense. So uh, another form of this, hyper-Calvinism or determinism, that everything is predetermined. And so whatever happens in your life, it's predetermined. Now we don't feel that, we feel like we're making decisions, right? Like I'm going to the bathroom, I'm deciding to eat here or there. Now, God can nudge us or guide us, but in the end, we are not puppets and God is not the puppeteer. So I think of the things that sometimes Christians say, and when I think of them, I wanna encourage you not to say them because there are many times that what Christians have said have actually pushed people away from the faith instead of drawing them to the faith in the midst of suffering. So what we hope is that people might draw strength from God, but instead, sometimes we say things like this, you know, everything happens for a reason. When somebody's mourning the death of their child, that's not a very helpful thing to say. What you've actually said is that God wanted your child to die. There was some reason, some part of God's master plan, and he wanted your child to die. And I think of a woman who once wrote me some years back. She said, our baby died this past spring when he was six weeks old. So many Christians told us uh, that we've encountered since then tell us this was God's plan. Before this tragic event, I guess I thought that was how life worked too. But there's no way that the death of an innocent six-week-old is a part of some master plan. And if it is, then I'm simply not interested in the God that has that plan. So sometimes we just, we don't know what to say when we're trying to comfort and console someone. You know, sometimes the best thing is not to say anything, but to wrap your arms around them and hold them. Some, sometimes sometimes it's, not, it's not, you know, your task to try to explain everything that happens in the world. But if you can avoid blaming God for the suffering, that might actually help them find comfort and peace in God, as opposed to turn away as this woman did. We, we say other things. So instead of everything happens for a reason, sometimes we say it's all a part of God's plan. Sometimes we say, well, it was just meant to be, right? And, and the, the meant to be, I think about a woman I had a conversation with who was trying to get pregnant and she had tried for several years to have a baby. And in the midst of all of that, the, the disappointment and the hurt and then the wondering, what did I do wrong that God's not blessing me with a baby? Or why, you know, why, why have I, you know, why is God punishing me in this way? Or what was it really? And her friends in her women's Bible study, well, you know, God has a plan. Well, at that moment, that's not a very helpful thing to say. And, and I'll tell you, I don't even think it's a truthful thing to say. Now, can God close up wombs? In the Old Testament, that's how they understood it. God closed up a womb and opened a womb. Can God close up wombs? I suppose God can. But in a time when people didn't understand fertility, that was the only natural explanation for things. So if you're going for infertility treatment, are you fighting against the will of God? Or are you actually taking advantage of the tools that God has given us today to be able to address the physiology of infertility? And you see the dilemma that comes in these things. So I'm gonna to suggest to you that God isn't in the business of abusing children or having them abused by people. 
God is not in the business of killing children or adults. God isn't in the business of people being sexually harassed or assaulted or causing wars to happen or famines or watching somewhere between 8,000 and 15,000 people die every day from starvation and malnutrition-related diseases. That isn't the way God works. I think back to a book I read that was really pivotal for me in seminary, and it became one of my favorite books by Leslie Weatherhead, who was a missionary to India and then became a pastor in London and served, really led one of the largest churches in London during World War II. And he described going uh, uh, going to India as a missionary, and as he was pastoring a church, uh, one of his members came and his, uh, this man's wife had died of malaria. And he, uh, he said, in, in resignation and pain, I guess it must have just been the will of God. And Leslie Weatherhead had the presence of mind to say, let me ask you a question. What if I told you that somebody actually snuck into your house and injected malaria, the malaria virus, into your wife uh, last night or several weeks ago and caused her to die? He said, I'd say that person should be arrested and thrown in prison. He said, isn't that what you've just ca- accused God of doing? Is, is, uh, is causing your wife to have malaria so that she would die. This is not how God is operating in our world. So if God isn't causing everything to happen, he's not manipulating us as puppets and the weather and the, and, and, uh, the food patterns on our planet and everything else, then what, what do we do to explain suffering that happens in the world? And all of this is, you understand this already. If you take God out of the equation, these are the same explanations you would have. So let's talk about suffering caused by human acts, suffering caused by natural disasters, and suffering caused by illness for just a moment, just to remind us of how we think about these things. So when it comes to suffering caused by human acts, that's most of the suffering we experience on this planet on a daily basis, or not a daily, but maybe a weekly basis. Somebody hurts our feelings, somebody rejects us, maybe something happens to us, maybe there's a, well, you understand, there's a lot of things that humans can do to each other that are not God's will. What is God's will for how we treat each other? Jesus makes it really clear. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not that hard to understand. Summarizes the entire Bible, Jesus said. And then he also said this summarizes it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or as some of you have on your t-shirts, Micah tells us, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? So if something happens that's opposite of that, we can't say that's the will of God. We can say that's what happens with human beings. So I'm thinking back to the story of Noah and the ark. And this happens in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. And, in, and ends in the first little bit of chapter nine. So in Genesis chapter six, now all ancient cultures or almost all of them had flood stories, but the biblical flood story is a, is a bit different. In fact, it's really different and it's good to read and study and understand the differences. But in any case, what we find is as the story begins, we read these words. The Lord saw that humanity, humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole. I'm sure there was a lot of good there too, but there were human beings mistreating each other. And a few verses down, we're going to find that the key thing was violence towards each other. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and he was heartbroken. It wasn't that he said, well, this is my will, and I'm I'm causing them to kill each other and hurt each other. No, he was heartbroken by what human beings do to each other. What that tells us is that everything doesn't happen because God wants it to happen. In fact, most of what you read in the Bible is people doing what God doesn't want them to do, and then God coming along to try to pick up the pieces and redeem the pain that we've inflicted upon one another. Grieves God. Another translation says it grieved God to his heart that human beings were perpetually violent towards one another. All right, so if everything doesn't happen because God wants it to happen, then human beings are responsible for these things. It, you know, in some sense, when we're pointing our finger towards God and blaming God for these things, 
you know, we have three or four, three, what, three fingers and a thumb pointing back towards ourselves. We are responsible. This is what we find in Genesis chapter one. So God has created everything and he's made it all good. And then this is what he says in Genesis 1.28 to the first humans. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So God is telling us, look, I created everything. The cosmos belongs to me. The earth belongs to me, but I'm putting you in charge. I'm asking you to be responsible for your neighbors. I'm asking you to be responsible for each other. I'm asking you to be responsible for the earth, to be responsible for the animals. It's interesting. This is a great text for an Earth Day weekend. Yesterday was Earth Day, and uh, an Earth Day wasn't something, I mean, while we technically and, you know, kind of created this, this, this day in the 1970s, it actually goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. The very first command God gives is you're to take care of the earth. You're to have dominion over it. You're in charge of it. God has made you stewards of, of everything you know, that we can control. And so do we use our freedom well, or do we use it for harm? And that's really the question we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis. And, and when we think about that, we go back to the story in Genesis chapter 2, which we've talked about many times, where Adam and Eve are placed in the midst of paradise. And there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember, God says to the, the first humans, don't eat from this particular tree. Now, have you ever wondered, like, if God knew that they were going to eat from the tree, why did God put the tree there to begin with? Couldn't God have put it somewhere where they couldn't find it, you know, where they wouldn't see it? Don't, don't eat from the fruit from this tree. And of course, once God tells them not to eat from the fruit from the tree, what happens in their hearts? The same thing that happens in your heart when somebody tells you no, you want to say yes, you want to do, if the speed limit is 55, how fast do you drive? Now, some of you maddeningly drive 45, but <laughs> most of the rest of us, you know, are whirling along at 65, even though we know the rule is 55. Why is that? There's something in us that has a tendency to push the envelope, to be able to, you know, to be drawn to do the thing that we're not supposed to do. And, and we here, we've all heard the serpent whisper in our ears, calling us to do the thing we're not supposed to do. And though we know we're not supposed to do it, we find it seems tantalizing and maybe it's going to be delicious to either eat the fruit of revenge or the fruit of lust or the fruit of hate. And we think if we eat that fruit, we're going to be satisfied. But instead, what we find is paradise is lost. Right? This is our story. So, so much of human suffering that happens isn't what God wants to happen. It's what God doesn't want to happen. But God gives us freedom. This is a terrifying thing. I think, I think what God was regretting in the story of Adam and Eve, or Noah and the ark is that God gave us freedom. God made us like him to make decisions and choices. Better if God had just made us robots and we just had to do the right thing all the time. But freedom means that we have a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing, to do good or to do ill or evil, to bless or to curse. We all have that awesome and terrifying freedom and we can use it for good or we can use it for evil. Which will we use it for? We determine in our own lives whether we're gonna inflict suffering or bring healing and blessing. All right, so human suffering inflicted by other people. We can't blame God for what God has commanded us not to do, and we understand clearly what God has commanded us to do, and sometimes we don't do it. And in both of those cases, we call that sin. That is straying from God's path. That's what the literal Greek word hamartia, which we translate as sin, means, to stray from God's path or to miss the mark. So then we talk about suffering from human nature, or not from human nature, from, uh, from natural disasters. And when we begin to analyze this, and of course in the, ancient, you know, in the ancient times, they couldn't understand things like earthquakes. Like earthquakes, if you, were, if you lived in the Bronze Age, how did you make sense of the earth shaking apart and, and creating a chasm in which people fell in and died, except that the gods must be angry? How else could you explain it? But today we explain that differently, right? We understand plate tectonics, at least a little bit of it. Let me just remind you a little basic science here. 
So, uh, so this is the earth, and what we find is about three to 60 miles worth of crust at the top of the earth. And that crust is, is set up in plates, and those plates move. The mantle of the earth is made up of, of hundreds of miles of magma, and that magma superheats as it comes close to the core of the earth, which is superheated. And it, it acts as the antifreeze, if you will, or coolant for the earth, and it rises to the surface, carrying all that heat, the energy from the ins- internal portions of the earth. And then it begins to cool off as it comes near the top, and then it begins to fall back down as it becomes lighter, right? And so we see this process constantly happening. And the crust of the earth moves along this mantle. And when two tectonic plates run into each other, right, they, they push against each other until they can't push anymore, and finally energy is released and we have an earthquake. Now, this is the earth's natural cooling processes. Without this, this earth couldn't support life. But when human beings live along a fault zone, and if they can't afford to build a house that's resistant to earthquakes, as many buildings can be built today, people are going to die. Most people who die in earthquakes aren't because they fell into the crevice of the earth. It's because their buildings collapsed on top of them. And most of the people who die in earthquakes are poor because they don't have the ability to build buildings that can withstand the earthquakes. So is that... God's issue or is it our issue? Do we curse God because the earth is able to cool itself and support life or do we thank God that the earth is able to do that and we're able to be here? Or hurricanes, you know, we think the hurricanes do much the same thing. These, are, these are, are created in such a way that they disperse the energy and the heat that happen around the equator and, and takes the ocean and cools the ocean down and it cools the atmosphere down and spreads water you know, into areas where it otherwise might not have it and that's a good thing and that's a blessing and it allows you know, life to be supported on our planet. Now, if we overheat the planet, if we contribute somehow to heating up the the planet and the Earth's waters, well, then we're creating more and more of those hurricane events, cyclones, tropical storms, and more and more people are harmed. If we build in the path of these kind of storms and we don't build homes that are resistant to that, it's likely that something bad is going to happen for us. And today, people who are building know how to build in a way that they can do this, but the folks who don't have the resources can't. And so once again, we find that those who have often are the ones, or those who don't have are often the ones most hurt by these natural disasters? Do we curse God because God created a, a process by which the earth could cool itself? Or do we thank God for the miracle of a planet that allows that to happen? And the same is true as we understand, you know, the weather patterns. So, you know, it used to be people couldn't predict whether it was going to rain or not going to rain or whether it was going to be drought. And today our weather people can do that relatively well, right? So I have three weather apps and I always check at least one of them every morning to see, is it going to rain today? Do I need to take my umbrella? Or the folks at the weather forecasting, you know, the meteorological institute, are they prophets of God discerning what God wants to do with the rain today? Or do they understand the meteorological weather patterns and help us understand how to live in a world like this? So we can blame God or we can give thanks to God for a planet that's able to support and sustain life. All right, so suffering caused by illness. And again, this is just a scratch, just scratching the surface and overview. But I think about, you know, many of these illnesses are caused, at least some of our illnesses, cancer in particular, caused by uh, genetic uh, mutations. And those genetic, genetic mutations are what make it possible for us to have a variety of life forms on our planet and for us to all look different. We're not all clones of each other. We look different, we, we, you know, and, and we thank God for the mutations that happen and the adaptation that happens, you know, in our world and, and human, species, human and other species able to adapt. Um, but at the same time, sometimes those cells that mutate are harmful. Our body has a system built into it. How amazing is this, that it usually recognizes cells that are not good and it destroys them, right? This is our body's own healing processes. And yet sometimes that doesn't happen and sometimes a cell breaks through. It's strong enough to resist the body's own processes or maybe the body doesn't detect it. And then it produces more cells and usually they're harmless, but sometimes they actually 
end up cannibalizing healthy cells, and we call that cancer. Right? And so we understand that, and now we're treating that, and that's awesome. And if we believe that God gave people cancer, then why do we go see the doctor for treatment? If, if God gave us cancer, we should just accept it as the will of God and you know, suffer through it. But instead, we go to the doctors because we don't think cancer is God's will. Same thing with illness. Jesus didn't walk this earth and find sick people and go, oh, I'm so sorry, it's the will of God. No, he healed them. Why did he heal them? Because he didn't think sickness was the will of God. So when we look at the sicknesses that happen in our world, we recognize this. And, you know, we're, we're grateful. Part of what we know is, actually, part of what we know is none of us knows how long we have, right? And sometimes we forget that. Last week, one of my friends, uh, within a week and a half, lost a nephew who was 30 and an aunt who was 59, both to heart attacks. And, you know, the conversation we had after that was, you know, none of us knows how long we have. So let's savor today. Let's appreciate this moment. And let's be able to be grateful for what we have. And I've told Levon and my kids this too, you know, something happens, happens to me and I were to die of a heart attack or in a, you know, a car accident or a plane crash or something, just know how grateful I am for the years that I had, right? Because we're not guaranteed anything. We just savor what we have. Now, I also recognize that some of the viruses, so viruses are, are really built around little pieces of genetic data that's, that are uh, mutated, they continually mutate. But, you know, during COVID, I looked this up to find out what impact do, do viruses have on the human species? And do you know 10% of your DNA came from interactions between humans and, and uh, viruses? 10%, including some of the things that are really important for your life came because of the interaction between human DNA and viruses. Somehow, you know, they also have some good impact along with the difficult things that they bring about. All right, I was also thinking about this when it comes to our human bodies, and, you know, it's, it's hard. You know, generally speaking, most of us live, I think the average life expectancy in America today is 75 or 76, and if you make it to 75, you're going to live to be 90, and if you make it to 90, I don't know, I guess you're going to live forever. And so, well, actually, we saw that this week. I don't know if you saw this story about a guy who, his, I think he had his birthday last Tuesday, or maybe it's this Tuesday, 109 years old. Did you all see this guy? Here's a picture of him. And uh, this is Vincent, and Vincent still drives. He's 109, and he's still driving. Imagine that. People wanted to know, well, Vincent, what did it, you know, what's the key to living so long? You know what he said? A glass of milk, add some Ovaltine once in a while. I have a beer once in a while, and I try to stay positive. That was his answer to why he's alive at 109 and still driving. How amazing is that? So if you take that 109-year-old, now I want you to imagine your car. So your car is built around driving about 15,000 miles a year. That's on average in America. And you're supposed to change the oil every, what, 5,000 miles now, something like that? So you change the oil every 5,000 miles, you give it a tune-up at certain points, 30,000 miles, you do some more stuff, and at 60,000 miles, you do some more stuff. And if you take care of it pretty well, that car's going to go for about 200,000 miles, maybe longer. So Vincent, you know how many miles he's got on him at 15,000 miles a year? 1,625,000 miles that guy's been going. And you know what he does? He, he drinks milk and Ovaltine and has a beer once in a while. You know, we don't, you know, we don't take care of these bodies the way we could and should. And of course, you know, the, the largest killer in the world is cardiovascular disease. And yet we still eat French fries like crazy and fail to work out and, and all of that. And we still get 75, mile, 70, 75 years. That's 1,125,000 miles on most of us, even by not taking care of ourselves. Am I going to be angry with God because there's sickness in the world or grateful for the gift of life? and to recognize that I am fearfully, the psalm says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. All right. Oh, by the way, you have 37 trillion cells in your body, and, uh, and some of them every year, maybe every day, are going to have something wrong with them, but your body generally takes care of it along the way. Here, here's the other thing that God does, and this is what we celebrated at Easter. 
As he says to us, none of us knows how long we have, but he says to us, this life is not all there is. This is just the beginning of the great adventure that God has for you. And he says, there's gonna come a day when death is swallowed up in victory. And he promises us and demonstrated this to us in the resurrection of Christ, again, that suffering and sorrow and pain and adversity and even death do not have the final word. So we live our lives, at least if we're people of faith, we live our lives as people with hope, right? And we know that even this life, C.S. Lewis described this life as just the title and the cover page of the great adventure that God has written for us that goes on and on forever and ever, and every chapter is better than the chapter before. So that leads me to the question of what theologians call God's providence, divine providence, or how God cares for his creation. So how does God care for his creation? Well, first of all, God created everything that exists, so that belongs to him, and he created it. The natural laws that govern our universe, right? Those God designed, some of them I don't even understand. The physicists talk about things that boggle my mind, but I do understand some things that work here on earth. So I was taking a walk this week, and I was looking at the trees, and they're beginning to, you know, to come out. The leaves are beginning to come out. And I was looking at the flowers. Have you noticed the, the uh, crabs right now, the, the purple crabs, and, or the pink crabs, and the white crabs, and, and the red buds, and the dogwoods, at least in my house, are just beginning to bloom? And I look at all these things, and I think, how awesome is that? And standing underneath my crab trees, you can hear the bees buzzing in them, you know, these little bees buzzing all around. I'm like, how cool is that? And here's what I'm thinking is you know what, tr- what trees breathe, you remember? Carbon dioxide. What's the toxin that you uh, exhale? Carbon dioxide. The trees breathe what you don't need, what's poisonous to you. Is that not amazing? And then you know what they exhale? They exhale oxygen. And what do you need to live? Oxygen. I mean, don't you, do you ever just stop and look at things and go, how awesome is that? that God designed this planet and God works by providing for us in this way, or that that there's seed time and harvest or that there's rain that comes, or we have different seasons because the tilt of the earth and all of these things somehow work together to be able to sustain life. Now, that's not all that God does, but that's a huge thing that God does. And, And then, of course, we recognize the Holy Spirit works in us and nudges us and comforts us, and we find Scripture guides us and the church and other people, and all of these things are ways that God is at work in our world. But the primary way that God works in addition to all of that is through us. God works through people. So when we go back to that Genesis 128 passage, he says, you be fruitful and multiply. You fill the earth. You subdue it. You have dominion over it. You take care of it, right? And, and so we have a sense that our task is to be the hands of, and, and feet and voice of Christ in this world to be able to help the world have healing, to stand with people who are struggling or who are suffering, to look to see the problems that are in this world and ask, how can I play a role in helping this? If there are eight to 15,000 people who are dying every day of starvation and malnutrition-related diseases, which is less than half of what it was 30 years ago, by the way, why is it less than half of what it was 30 years ago? Because humans began to say, we can do something about this, right? So if we know that there are people who are starving and we have enough, then part of what our task is is to share. If we know there are people who are hurting or grieving, part of our task is to come along as stretcher bearers, to stand with them and to carry and sustain them. I mean, in our lives, we are the instruments that God chooses to use. I remember uh, a conversation I had with one atheist and a good guy, and we were having a great conversation. and, And I said, so the reason why you're not a follower of Christ or the reason why you don't believe in God is because of the suffering that happens in the world. Yep, that's right. I said, now let me just get this straight. So you don't believe in God because of suffering. Do you have any less suffering in your life because of that? No. Was the world any less filled with suffering because you don't believe in God anymore? No. I said, so you've just taken away the only source of hope we have 
but you're still left with all the suffering. And, and the one who motivates us and leads us to, to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the world to bring healing and hope and strength and help and food and justice, like you took away the driver for many people who are involved in doing those things when you gave up God in the midst of the suffering. The suffering is still there. You just gave up our source for hope. This week, I ate supper with two families who had lost sons to suicide. I mentioned this. One had lost their son about six months ago and one about six years ago. And, uh, and we had a chance to enjoy a dinner together and conversations and connecting. And, and uh, at the end, I asked uh, one of those parents, the, the mom and dad who lost their son, Chad, six, almost six years ago, six years ago this summer. And I said, tell me about your faith. What role has your faith played? How has your faith been impacted by this terrible loss? And Nathan said this to me. He said, um, when this happened, it shook my faith and these, this is a family who was here every Sunday, shook my faith really, 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 really. I mean, I felt such darkness and such pain. He said, do you remember what I said to you a couple weeks after Chad died? And I said, you know, remind me. And he said, I said, I am so angry with God right now. Who wouldn't be? Right now, had God caused his son to take his life? No. And, and, and had there been, you know, thought processes his son had that had led to this process? Yes. And, and, and mental issues that we all wrestle with? So he, he knew that God hadn't wanted this to happen. But at the same time, in the moment, how can you not feel angry and disappointed with God? It's Jesus hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and then he said, uh, he said, your response when I said I'm so angry with God was, that's okay. God can handle you being angry with him. It's all right. God understands your emotions and your feelings. And you can curse at God and be angry with God. But ultimately, God wants, to work, wants you to work through the anger and the and the pain to find comfort and strengthen him again. His wife Sylvia said this, our faith taught us long before this happened to be grateful for what we have. And she said, and I, I thought this was remarkable. She said, we laid there in bed the next morning after Chad had died and we turned to each other and said, okay, what do we have to be grateful for? And they began thanking God for things in their life that they were grateful for, even though they had lost their son in one of the hor most horrible ways you can lose a child. Gratitude. Paul teaches us to give thanks in all circumstances. And, and then Nathan said, my faith returned and it has sustained us. Part of what I realized is that my only hope of seeing my son again was God, that I would see him again, that he was with God in heaven and that I would see him again one day. And then he said this, but Adam, I have to tell you this, I have lived the words you say every Easter. I have lived in these last, we have lived in these last six years, those, those words, the worst thing, is never the last thing. That's been true for us. Now, Nathan and Sylvia, uh, not long after all this happened, began to feel God calling them to do something with the pain they'd experienced. And, and they began asking, well, what is it that if, if the schools could teach this to kids, maybe they would make a different decision. That year, there were five kids in Blue Valley who took their lives that year. And they started an organization called Keep the Spark Alive. They began raising money through golf tournaments. They began working with experts to find what can we do with these kids to help them. And, and now this, this, uh, the, the materials that they have prepared used in all of the Blue Valley schools and a number of other schools. And this last year, you know how many suicides there were in the Blue Valley schools? Zero. Now, I'm not saying it was all just Nathan and Sylvia's work, but they contributed to that. And what happened was they felt that God laid something on their laps that they never would have chosen to work on 
in the hopes of redeeming the suffering that they'd experienced and helping make sure that no other kid made the decision that Chad had made and no other parents had to walk through what they were walking through. Did, J- did God put Chad up to taking his life so they could work on keep the spark alive? No. God didn't want Chad to die. But in the midst of the pain, God doesn't want to waste our pain, but seeks to redeem our pain and once more to work through humans to bring healing to the earth. I got to share with you this one last thing. This week I had uh, one of my other visits was a man named uh, Dr. Ronald Kalua, who I first met 11 years ago when he was working on his doctorate at St. Paul School of Theology, which is located here on our, on our campus. And uh, Ronald was from Uganda And when he was a teenager, he'd gone to visit his grandpa who was dying in a rural village in Uganda, and he saw how horrible, what squalid conditions they lived in there, that there was no safe drinking water. They they pulled their water from a swamp and how the kids would get sick. There was no school there, and so the kids would walk miles to get to a school, and some of the kids had been kidnapped and held for ransom. He talked about the the conditions of the people there, no no churches in that community. and, and, uh, And so as a teenager, he began to feel like, I should do something about that. Came to the United States, went to college, got his master's degree, and then finally got his doctorate at St. Paul School of Theology, and he went back to Uganda, back to the village where his grandfather had lived. His grandfather was now deceased. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to make sure that we can raise money to build a borehole so they can have clean drinking water. So he started there and ended up building 83 boreholes in cities throughout Uganda, rural areas. Then he said, you know, somebody's going to have to take care of these. I should start a Bible study to every one of these boreholes so that they can be, you know, learning about faith while also helping to take care of the boreholes. And he started 83 Bible studies, 17 of which became churches. And then he said, we need to start schools. And he started three schools so far, and those three schools now have 1,250 children who are going to school in these, in these communities. I wanted you to see, this is Ronald Kalua, and, uh, and we were hanging out in the Memorial Garden for just a couple minutes, an amazing young man. And go to the next slide, and you can see this is, uh, this is a church building, a school building, excuse me, uh, with four classrooms. And, you know, you paid for this building from a candlelight Christmas Eve offering several years ago in the land. At least you helped. Uh, this is where the classes meet currently. It was underneath trees. Go to the next one. Uh, this was a building they were able to acquire already. It was never finished, but you can see this is a classroom for these kids. Go to the next slide. This is one of the churches they built, and they start by building lean-to, like pole barns, and then eventually they add to them. And so a school and the church meets in this spot. And go to the next one. Or maybe that's the last one. That's the last one. You know, I had so much fun meeting with him this week because what I had a chance to tell him was, well, from last candlelight Christmas Eve, we have a $100,000 check coming to you to be able to build another five classrooms in your community. You see how this works? That God works through people, that we see the pain and the brokenness. We feel God calling us to do something about it. Then God calls other people to come alongside us, and healing happens in the world. All right, I'd end with this. This is something I share with you uh, probably every two years I try to share this with you. Ray Firestone, a retired pastor who helped when we started Church of the Resurrection, died a few years ago. We have a Firestone Chapel named after him. But he shared this with me years ago. I found it very helpful. Suffering is not God's desire for us. This came from someone else. I don't even know who the original author of this was, but suffering is not God's desire for us, but it occurs in the process of life. Suffering is not given to teach us something, but through it, we may learn. Suffering is not given to teach others something, but through it, they may learn. Suffering is not given to punish us, but sometimes it is the consequence of our sin or poor judgment. Suffering does not occur because our faith is weak, but through it, our faith may be strengthened. God does not depend on human suffering to achieve his purposes, but sometimes through suffering, his purposes are achieved. Suffering can either destroy us or it can add meaning to our lives. Here's what God does. He creates a magnificent universe and a planet that can support life. 
And then God walks with us in the good times and the bad times. God works through us to be instruments of his healing. And ultimately, God makes all things work together to accomplish his purposes and to bring about good in this world and in our lives when we trust in him. And that's why we don't blame God for the pain and the brokenness in the world. We ultimately thank God for the blessing of life. And we say, here I am, Lord, use me. Let's pray. And would you just whisper that to God? Why don't you start just, thank you, God, for everything. Help me to see the needs in the world around me. And use me as an instrument of your healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.